me to James chapter 2. As you're turning, I just want to say a couple of weeks ago, I, I referred to Stephen Furtick as Stephen Heretic in kind of a joking way. So I ask you to forgive me for that. Not, not that I don't believe he's a heretic, but I just don't want to give off the impression that I'm speaking of heresy in a, in a joking, jovial way. So please forgive me for that. So here in James chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 26. And as we read this and go through this, think about this in the context of what we already covered this morning. What good is it? My brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was acting along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead also. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this holy scripture for your grace and your mercy in our lives. Father, help me as I preach this text that I would do so faithfully and clearly. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to help us, to assist us, to guide us, to convict us, to give us hope. Help us, Lord, to examine our own lives, our own faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is a section of scripture that Martin Luther was greatly troubled with. Because it seemed as though James is saying, works save us. But I believe as we look at this within the context of 
of, of what James is doing here, it becomes clear as to why he's saying these things. Consider the context from this morning. In verses 8 and 9, James addressed those who try to justify their sin by calling it obedience to Scripture. In verses 10 through 12, he addresses those who belittle their sins when confronted. And by doing this, he showed them that all sin is heinous because all sin is disobedience to God. Therefore, no sin can be called a small sin. And he adds to the statement in verse 12 by telling them to conduct themselves as Christians, those who will be judged by the law of liberty. And this means two things. There is a certain way for Christians to conduct themselves. We do not have a religion in which we, we just do whatever we want and, and there's no standards for how we live. And I know that James is stepping on many toes there. But, but, but the second meaning here is that his readers were not conducting themselves in that manner. The, the reason why James says they were not conducting themselves as Christians is because they were not showing mercy to the poor. Instead, they were showing favoritism to the rich. And this is a big problem. Because in verse 13, James makes it clear that those who show no mercy will receive no mercy on judgment day. And again, we know that James is not saying that we earn mercy by giving mercy, but that if we have been shown mercy by God truly, we will be merciful to others. And since the one who will receive no mercy from God on judgment day is not actually saved, James is saying that his readers are conducting themselves as people who are not saved. People who will stand before God and receive no mercy. Think about that. He's saying, if you live this way, if this is what you are doing, you you are showing no mercy, you will stand before God and receive no mercy. Can, can, Can you comprehend what that means? What is mercy? Not receiving what you deserve. So he's talking about people who who will stand before God and God will give them the wrath that they deserve. This is not a Christian he's speaking about. James is correcting people who, who profess to be Christians but are acting like heathens. And I'm sure we all know several professing Christians who when we view their lives, there's no difference between them and the world. And how would this person respond if you told them, you don't act like a Christian? Well, we often hear things such as, you can't judge me, only God can judge me. Or or when we tell people that that there's a certain way that we should behave as Christians, what do we often hear in in American Christianity? I'm not under law. 
I'm under grace. What does Paul say in Romans 6? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? For you are not under law, but under grace. To Paul, being under grace was the reason why he would no longer live in sin. And for much of American Christianity, being under grace has become an excuse to sin. So so here's where we are at in the text. And I want you to to sort of look at this as a a conversation. Uh, Remember that that James is anticipating objections and, and answering them. James confronts the sins of these professing Christians and he knows that instead of repenting, some will try to disguise their sin as obedience to the second tablet of the law. So James shows them that it is impossible to keep the law and show partiality. But instead of repenting, they say, well, we may be guilty of partiality, but we don't commit the greater sins. So so he knows they're going to belittle their sins. So what does James do? He shows them that that all sin is transgression against God. And he tells them to act like Christians. But again, instead of repenting as true Christians should do, he knows some will think to themselves when confronted, I am saved by faith. Not works. And I know what you're thinking. We all know better than this, don't we? But it is amazing how irrational and foolish men and women will become to avoid admitting wrong. Think of this progression that has happened. (coughs) Don't show partiality. Okay, I'll excuse that by saying I'm obeying the law. James says, you're not obeying the law. Partiality is wrong. It is is sinful. And he knows they're going to think to themselves, well, this is a small sin. Look look at the world around me. Look what they're doing. And you're going to convict me of, of partiality. So James says there is no small sin. All sin is lawlessness against God. You are a lawbreaker. And what happens next? Well, why is this law word being thrown around when we are saved by grace. We, 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 can, we can see over and over again real life examples of this. Con- confront a Christian in their sin and watch how they start twisting things and, and using excuses instead of just repenting and confessing. It's amazing what we will do in order to avoid repentance. And this is the issue here. A refusal of professing Christians to confess and repent 
of sin. And James anticipates that his readers won't do this when he calls them out on their partiality. He knows they're going to make excuses. So, so he's taking away every excuse they could make. But men and women not wanting to repent is nothing new, is it? From the beginning of time, who did Adam blame for his sin? Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? Paul tried to, I mean, um, not Paul, but uh, David tried to get, get uh, Uriah to, to sleep with his wife to cover up his sins. And, and when that did not work, he went to the extreme of murder to cover his sins. I mean, come on, David. How, how easy is it to confess and repent? You're going to murder a man to, to cover your sins? But think of that. Perhaps we won't murder a person to cover our sins, but we sure will start twisting Scripture in order to do so. But what does Scripture tell us about covering sins? Proverbs 28, 13, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. You want mercy? Confess and repent. What should we do when we sin? 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess, dear friends, and repent. So how does James answer those who refuse to acknowledge their sins all the way to the point of saying, I am saved by faith. Don't try to confront me. I am saved by faith. You are acting like what, I'm, what I am doing is somehow saying that I'm not saved. I'm saved by faith, not by what I do, right? Verse 14, James asks a question. What does it profit? My brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? Some would argue here that James is contradicting Paul. Because Paul says, we hold that, that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. But, but James is not saying anything different. James is simply saying that, that, that true faith which saves, produces, works. Dead faith does not. And he gives us an example of what, of what dead faith looks like. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of, of daily food, and, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Here's how he describes faith that does not produce works. It's like saying to someone who's poor and in need, go, be warm, and be filled. I'll see you later. Does it profit? Does it help that person? Does it feed that person? Does it fill their empty stomach? 
Does, does it clothe that naked person? No, it, it does not help them in any way at all. And just as empty words cannot clothe a naked man or feed a hungry man, so a faith that does not produce works cannot save. Mere words that, that appear to be compassion profits no one. It does not pr- profit the person in need, and it, and it proves that the compassion is actually false. Just as a fruitless faith Profits nothing. It does not produce fruit and it cannot save. It is a dead faith. And in case you missed it, he restates it. Verse 17. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And some may already be uncomfortable with what James is saying. This is, this is sounding a lot like legalism. But we're going to see what he's doing here. Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Again, if it is a true saving faith, it will produce Fruit. Now, is it wrong for, for James to say 100% if your faith is sincere, it will produce fruit? Is he wrong for saying this? Perhaps there's a person who has true, genuine faith, but they just don't show it. Can, can James say with certainty that true faith will save? Listen to the words of Christ in John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's what happens with dead faith, with fruitless faith. The Father takes it away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Why does he take away the dead branch? It's dead. There's nothing there. And then he goes on in verse 5 of 15 saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. If you are in Christ, You must produce fruit. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Know that if you die without a true saving faith that has produced fruit, you are a fruitless branch, good for nothing, but to be cast into the fire and burned. And then he says in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. If we are in Christ, we will produce fruit. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has even prepared our good works ahead of time. 
But someone will say, verse 18, you have faith and I have works. James says, I challenge you. Show me your faith without works. In case you are saying that this is, this is legalism, don't try to judge my faith. James says, demonstrate. Show me your faith without works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Dear friends, it is impossible for true faith to be made known except by works. There is no other way. And you tell this to professing Christians, and what do they say? My faith is between me and God. Don't judge me. I don't have to prove a thing to you. I will stand before God. You don't worry about me. But what does Christ say in Matthew 7? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. How will I know them, Christ? Tell me, how will I know them? You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. And every bad tree bears bad fruit. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Get out of this mentality which says you can't judge a book by its cover. But what James was condemning in, in, in this judging in, in chapter 2 in, in the beginning, which we talked about this morning, was, was a judgment of looking at a person. And, and based upon external things you see, m- making decisions about who you're going to show favoritism to, he, he is not talking about don't judge a person in, in sense of character, in sense of what you see. Because, because ultimately... What you see in the fruit, in the works that are produced, represent what is in the heart. James is not letting up. For for those who justify or refuse to acknowledge sin by saying, I am saved by faith, James says to you, if your faith does not produce good fruit, if your faith is producing partiality, If your faith is producing covering sin, refusing to repent, if your faith is producing you sinning and calling it obedience to Scripture, if your faith is producing you belittling your own sins and calling everyone else's sins damning, there's something revealed there. But, What happens when you say this to someone who knows their theology? What happens when a person who has studied theology refuses to acknowledge sin and you confront them in it? Don't tell me about faith. I know theology. I know the truth. You're going to try to teach me about faith? James anticipates this. Consider verse 19. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. There's there's almost some kind of sarcasm here. 
He said before, if you really fulfill the word of law according to the scripture to love your neighbors yourself, you do well. Now he's saying, you believe there is one God, you do well. He's calling their bluff here. James says, you believe God is one. Good job. Remember, James is writing to to Jewish Christians. He said to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. And and what he is saying here sounds a lot like the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's talking to Jewish believers. The the Shema here is a a thing that, that was, if you want to state your orthodoxy, we believe in the one true God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Douglas Moo points out that proclaiming that God is one in that context would, would, have similar, would be similar to churchgoers today loudly proclaiming their belief in the deity of Christ. What are they doing? <clears throat> in other words, they are expressing their orthodoxy. I have right doctrine. You're going to call me a sinner? You're going to challenge my faith? You're going to tell me that faith without works is dead when I am orthodox? I am a reformed Baptist. I am confessional. Are you really going to challenge me? James responds by saying, that's good. Guess who else is orthodox? Demons. They absolutely know the truth. Spurgeon said, Many are ready enough to say, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, who believe that they are children of God, because though they have no good works as evidence, they think they have faith. Ah, sir, you have faith, and there is another gentleman quite as respectable as you are who has faith. I shall not tell you his name this morning, but he is better than you. For it is said that he believes and trembles while you sit unmoved by the most powerful appeals. In other words, if your orthodoxy, if your proper understanding of faith does not produce good fruit, you are in no better situation than a demon who are very orthodox. The demons knew Christ before anyone else did. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. That they recognized him immediately. But not only were not better than a demon, but but in fact, the, the demon is better. Because it is said of him that that he believes and he shudders or trembles. What does this mean? One commentator says the word shudder can also be applied to the dread experienced by sinful people who know they are deserving of judgment to come. So James might be implying as demons, knowing something of the true God, yet lacking true faith, they shudder in fear of judgment. So also ought people whose verbal profession is not followed by action. In other words, the demons are orthodox, so they know they are damned. And they shudder. 
And yet many professing Christians who know orthodox theology don't even realize that they are damned because of their dead faith. They are deceived. They are in a worse situation than demons, yet they sit in Reformed churches and study Reformed theology. James says that the demons believe and shudder. But how is it that demons believe and tremble, and yet they are not saved? How is it that a a man can can know the content of the gospel and and study Reformed theology and say that he believes it, but, but yet not show fruit? I love how the Reformers described faith. They use three Latin terms to do this. They said, first, there is the notitia, which means the content of the gospel. We can't believe nothing. There has to be content. There is the content of the gospel that we are sinners in danger of God's judgment, but that Christ took upon himself our sins on the cross and paid for our wrath, took the wrath of the Father, rather, in our place. And imputed us his righteousness so that those who repent and believe shall be saved. This is the content of the gospel. But then there is what is called the essentials. Which means that there is an intellectual assent to the gospel. You must not only know what the gospel says, but you have to believe that it is true. Demons know the gospel. Not only do they believe it's true, they know it's true. Many people sit in churches knowing the content of the gospel and intellectually assenting to its truthfulness, but are dead in their sins. And so what the reformer says, said is that this must go one step further. So we have the fiducia, which is this personal trust that that Christ actually paid for my sins and so the example they give is of our modern example rather is of like medication I have an infection and so there's an antibiotic and I know there's some like naturopathic people in here who don't believe in antibiotics but just, just follow along with me You know what an antibiotic is. You understand that the concept of what this is supposed to do. And you can intellectually assent to the truthfulness of this thing working. But here's the question. Is that enough? If I say, my life is on the line. Here's a drug that can help me. And guess what? I believe it will. But it sits there on your counter. Does it help you? No. You have to pick it up, put it in your mouth, and swallow it. This is true saving faith. Not just an intellectual assent to the truthfulness of the gospel, but a personal trust that that Jesus actually died for my sins. And in a clinging to him, Saying that there's no way that I could save myself. I personally trust that Jesus died for my sins. 
And I am saved because of that. I have no other hope. I have, I have laid down trying to earn salvation. And I have trusted in him for everything. Not just an intellectual sin that says, yeah, I know he died for sinners. I believe that. I believe it's true. No. This is true. Christ personally died for my personal sins. This is, is a true saving faith, a, a wholehearted trusting in Jesus for salvation, throwing yourself upon his feet for grace and for mercy, not just intellectual assent to orthodoxy. There is a difference, dear friends. And I would argue that the only way to get this kind of faith is through regeneration. There are many people who are orthodox. As one man put it, they, 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 know, they, they, they know the God of the Bible. They, they know the, but, but, I can't even remember how they put it. But, but essentially, they, they know the Bible. But they don't know the God of the Bible. They are orthodox in their thinking. They can quote the confessions to you. But they have never been regenerated. And until they are born again, they can never have a true saving faith. This, dear friends, is why the demons believe and tremble and are yet not saved. And this is why in Christianity we see people, even pastors, who spend their lives teaching others orthodox theology and then prove to be frauds. They were no better than the demons. James says, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Foolish is the word Kinos. It means vain. This is the same word we, we talked about last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Now consider this. We talked about the importance of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, there is no faith. It is useless. It is empty. It is vain. It profits nothing. And now James is saying that faith without works is useless. It's vain. It profits nothing as though there was no resurrection. That's the type of vanity he is speaking of here. And then he gives us an example of true saving faith. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by, by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do, do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Abraham. Patriarch, the father of many nations, a man who, who God spoke to. We say, of course, this man had such a strong faith that, that it produced works. I mean, he was the patriarch. Of course, he had this type of faith. 
Of course his faith was so strong, was so big, his knowledge of God was so big that of course it produced fruit. James says, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? This is like the opposite of Abraham. Abraham is the patriarch, a man who who God talked to directly. The father, the patriarch. But who was Rahab? A harlot. In a pagan land who, who knew very little about God. And she reveals this to us in Joshua. I have heard of your God. How he brought you out of the land of Egypt. By the way, she had greater faith than, than the spies, didn't she? She said their hearts melted because they knew that the God of Israel was going to take over their land. There was nothing they can do. And here yet the spies say, we can't do it. But this woman, who knew almost nothing about God, had no one teaching her about God. She said, I know that the Lord God of Israel, he is God. And she had a true faith. Even though she knew so little, and this little itty-bitty seed of faith, what did it produce? It produced fruit. She was willing to lay down her life to hide these spies. Difference, some of us, we know a billion times more than Rahab. And yet we'd be afraid to lay down our lives for our faith. But, but here's the point. Abraham, this father of the faith, Rahab, this little babe who knew almost nothing, what happened when both of them had true faith? It produced fruit. Producing fruit is just not for the mature Christians. Dear friends, if you are a brand new baby Christian, with just a little bit of faith like Rahab, you are going to produce fruit. There's a heresy out there that, that you can have Jesus as, as Savior and not yet have him as Lord. And so you will be a carnal Christian. You won't produce any fruit, but you will still be saved. But someday you will produce fruit. That's heresy. If you are saved, there must be fruit. And so he says one more time in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. (coughs) What happens when a spirit leaves the body? There's a cold, hard, dead body. That's it. There's no life there. There's nothing there. James is saying this is the faith that doesn't produce works. 
that doesn't produce fruit. It's like a carcass. It's cold. It's hard. It's absolutely dead. It can do nothing. In conclusion here, let, let us look at three points of application. Number one, we must be aware of our pride. As pointed out, our sinful pride will will make a man or a woman go down some pretty bad roads to avoid having to acknowledge sin and repent. We already covered this in James. Sin protects itself. If we refuse to confess and repent of our sins, soon we will start denying and twisting truth and even changing our theology to allow for our sins. That's how our pride works. You say an orthodox person is not going to live this way. Dear friends, there have been many orthodox people who wanted a sin so badly that they changed their orthodoxy in order to have it. it. Happens all the time. When we are being confronted in our sins, we must Take care to not resist. Because when you start resisting, when you know that you are being confronted for, for, for true sin, when you know this in your heart, but yet your pride says, don't confess, don't repent, my sin is not as bad as theirs. When you are on that road, dear friends, you are in a dangerous place. the harder it becomes. And your conscience is going to gnaw and gnaw and gnaw at you all day long, and you have two options. Repent to have a clear conscience or change your theology. But the longer you wait, the more likely it is that you are going to start changing your theology. Sinful pride causes a man to ignore correction and refuse to receive it. What a dangerous thing to have in our hearts. May God humble us. Number two, as Christians, we must not only produce good works, but but we need to be zealous for good works. This is is milk. This is not meat. It's milk to say we need to be producing fruit. We need to go beyond just barely producing fruit. I love the way John Piper put it. He said, Christ did not die to make good works only merely possible or to produce a half-hearted pursuit. He died to produce in us a passion for good works. What does that say about the state of our faith? If we are resisting Correction to the point of saying, I'm saved by faith, not by works. The Christian should not be using his faith as an excuse to sin. The Christian should be passionate to do what is right, to do good works. Piper points out that Christian purity is not the mere avoidance of evil, but the pursuit of good. Titus 2.14, he who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
for good works. And for our final point of application, difference, how do we go on doing good works? Maybe we become a Christian, and, and you know what? Maybe we don't show partiality at first. But maybe over time, we start to do so. Maybe we started off doing good works, but we, we find ourselves in a situation where we're no longer zealous for that. Dear friends, if we will continue to do good works and be zealous to do good works, John 15 we must abide in Christ. He is the source. He is the motivation. He is the source of zeal. I leave you with this quote from Spurgeon. He says, Ah, Christian, you would have no good works if you had no fresh influence day by day. You would not find the grace given to you at the first hour sufficient to produce fruit today. It is not like the planting of a tree in our hearts which naturally of itself brings forth fruit, but the sap comes up the root of Jesus Christ. We are not trees of ourselves, but we are branches fixed on the living vine. Good works. I know where you come from. You come floating down on the stream of grace. And if I did not have the stream of grace always flowing, I would never find good works coming from me. Good works from the creature? Impossible. Good works are the gifts of God. His choice pearls which he sends down with his grace. Dear friends, even our good works are a result of his grace in our lives. This is not about becoming a Christian and then then becoming self-sufficient in doing good works. Dear friends, if we are not looking to Christ in his word and in prayer, we will have no motivation We won't have the grace in our lives to produce fruit. So if you find yourself in that situation, if you find yourself cold and dull, look to Christ. He not only gives us grace to save us, but grace to sanctify us, grace to serve him in all of our life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gift of salvation. Father, we thank you that even the good works that you require of us, you have prepared beforehand and you give us the grace to do them. That we never have to try to be self-sufficient, but, but to be leaning upon you and trusting in you. Father, help us all to examine our own hearts, to know whether or not our faith is, is, is sincere, whether or not it is alive and well. And Father, for those who even may be orthodox, but with dead faith, may you regenerate their hearts, melt their hearts of stone, Father. 
Give them a heart of flesh that truly responds, not with just an intellectual assent to the gospel, but a true saving faith. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.